Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. All right, welcome to the class on Romans. Today we'll look at chapter 6 which is just full of information and potential problems. But what I want to do is to say that if we've gotten chapter 5 correct, then we've gotten set up for chapter 6. Let me just state what may be at issue. And, of course, chapter 6 is built upon the idea of baptism, the meaning of baptism. Paul is arguing that you've been baptized, and so you should live like it. And the question is, in 6.5, when it says, we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. And, of course, all of this language is going to be problematic. I don't think it's really problematic, but likeness, what, what does that mean? And the, we'll look at the, the Greek there. And, of course, there's three basic opinions that, one would be, oh, well, it, it's simply similar to or like that there's no participation in his death. One would be that it is a repetition of his death in some way, a participation historically going back, or that baptism or his death in baptism, then that we make contact not with a past reality, but his death and the efficacy of his death is made available. And the idea here, I think, is that we do not want to take a Zwinglian sort of position that baptism is merely a sign of something else, and we'll look at the the problems, not in this lecture, but in the reading. But what will happen then is that in a kind of Zwinglian notion or the idea that baptism or even the Lord's Supper are mere signs, in a sense, this is not just a problem for these issues. It's a problem for language itself and what we have in available to us in reality. That is, can we participate in reality if God is ultimate reality? And what we're claiming is that there is a, it's not simply that we imitate, but that we are joined to God. And this is the whole movement, maybe more so in uh, the Eastern church in a notion of theosis, but actually I think in a Christian church understanding that we're more traditionally uh, in accord in some ways, not completely. If you had to choose between a Catholic or Eastern Orthodox uh, picture and a Zwinglian picture, we're neither of those. But there is the sense that in, in the Christian church, we believe the sign and the signified, the two things come together, that baptism Maybe we could talk about it as a sign, but not like the Baptists do, a sign of an inward event that is a sign something else, but the sign and the thing it signifies are joined together. That language is problematic. I'd probably avoid it, but you can use that sort of language. Well, yeah, it's a sign, but not of something elsewhere, but of a real-world event that takes place at that time. The other issue is just the meaning of body. And what is a body? Here we get into the whole problem of body-soul dualism, which just shouldn't be a problem for us. But that when Paul uses the term soma, 
he means a, a very particular thing, and the, the point is that his notion of soma is not just the individual, but a body is always part of, there is a corporate sense to it, that is being bodies are being interconnected. There is certainly the idea of sin and being a possibility in this corporate sensibility. We don't want to have a dualistic notion of souls a body or spirit and body over against one another, that we are our bodies. And Paul is going to use the term flesh, and what he means by flesh, of course, is not simply physical, but he means this old self that he talks about here, this fleshly self. And what I'm arguing is actually a very simple thing when we get into the history of this doctrine. We've already cleared up original sin, and that will make way then, I think, for understanding what Paul means. That the old self was crucified with him, the orientation to death that is definitive of sin, as he says clearly, our body of sin might be done away with. Not that our bodies are sinful, but that in a sense you could talk about there is a kind of alienation from our body, you know, from our actual physical body, and so it's like a layer of understanding is put upon our physical bodies that is false. And that falseness, a kind of delusion, and it is, you know, a deceit in Genesis. And Paul's going to picture it as, he's already pictured it as, as a deceit in chapter 2, but we'll also then in chapter 7 that our orientation to death in imagining that we do not die, as Satan put it, or we've entered into a covenant with death, there is this kind of immortal self we imagine that is a law. And the thing that's done away with is that deception and that deceptive orientation to death and our own body. Then the, the third thing ties in directly to this, that death is no longer master, therefore sin no longer has mastery. That's the argument. But we've already set up our understanding to get at this, that death resistance or death denial is definitive of sin, and this explains why sin can be undone by a reorientation to death. And Paul puts it in this language, you know, if, if there was any doubt in chapter 5 that it's death that gives rise to sin, it becomes even clearer here in chapter 6. And so when he talks about sin and being conjoined to the law, he's worked this out. His argument has been that all are sinful, that all are in some way under the law. Now, sometimes there may be some ambiguity as to what law, but it really doesn't, in my understanding, matter if he's talking about the prohibition in Genesis, if he's talking about some universal law that, you know, in, in Adam, if he's talking about the Mosaic law, what he's argued is that Jew and Gentile are all alike that are all are under the law, and then he subsumes this, he, he sums this up by talking about the law of sin and death. I think that that's always what the law boils down to. But in this lecture, I, I really want to just concentrate on the logic of what Paul is doing in regard to death as over and against the kind of failed Western understanding. In other words, uh, chapter 5, we concluded that an Augustinian reading there, and not just uh, Augustine, but of course the Western Church is going to misread and imagine that it's sin that gives rise to death in every individual. 
so that we're all guilty of sin. So our primary problem is the guilt of sin. And this is Augustinian original sin. Of course, the term original sin can be used in many ways. The uh, Eastern Church, many churches will talk about original sin, and they don't necessarily mean what Augustine meant by it. I avoid the term, or when I do use the term, I tend to mean Augustinian original sin, but the term is broader than Augustine's definition of it. But what we concluded is that sin reigned in death. That is that sin is an orientation to an already existing death. And so we're set for understanding that salvation is an undoing of this orientation. And I say here other things that we don't want to simply limit salvation to a resolution to our sin problem, that it's much more than this, that it is a full participation in who and what we are which is partly what's at stake here. You know, when we talk about the various issues in Calvinism, Arminianism, the Western tradition, even in the East, and they're going to get caught up in talking about a fallen will. Or, and, I, and this just isn't the language that I think Paul focuses on, because what a human being is cannot be located simply in the individual. And, and so there is that turn with Augustine. I think it's avoided for the most part in the Eastern Church, but that, of course, what Paul is talking about is a corporate identity, that what a human being is ultimately is our corporate identity in the Trinity that's shared in the body of Christ. If we get straight that Augustinian original sin is not the case, then the reign of death is understood to give rise to sin. This is precisely what Calvinism and Arminianism, we often say, oh, there's these two opposed pairs, Calvinism and Arminianism. But Arminianism is uh, really also working with the notion of Augustinian original sin. And so too, the various Arminian branches, you know, Methodism, the the Wesleyan tradition, they're really not a departure from a basic Calvinist understanding in regard to sin's origin or in regard to penal substitution. They're going to concur on that. And so the Western theological tradition flows out of a notion of original sin that you get in Augustine. The East will talk about original sin, but they, they mean something on the order of an imitation that we are who we are corporately. And so in this, I would agree with an Eastern identity, but that's sort of, there is always this sense, well, people say, well, you're changing up the whole tradition. Well, that's not true because there's another half of the church that has simply rejected Augustinianism. And with it, they've rejected all of the problems that we get, notions of individualism, you know, how are we saved? Well, we're saved in the body of Christ corporately as being found in him. If you just look at uh, Wikipedia or anywhere, it's, it, there's a very interesting comparison here that I think we often imagine that these three things might not line up. But of course, they all line up in the sense of buying into Augustinianism. But in Arminianism, it would not be total depravity. In Lutheranism, there's still the notion of free will, but the will is sinful by nature, and, and of course the idea that Luther's trying to get away from here, he's, he will accuse, everybody accuses the other of being Pelagian, and this is probably just a misunderstanding of who Pelagius was, we don't need to go get into that, but 
they mean this as an insult, and what they mean is Pelagius never really taught this, but what they are saying about Pelagianism is that it's a works righteousness, that you're saved by, by good works. But what you get even in Arminianism is that to be saved in some way, you have to be given a prevenient grace. And of course, I think the idea here is, well, of course, we're all given grace in that we, we have the cross of Christ that is a universal call to all people. It's, again, if we don't think individually, but corporately. It gets, you know, Calvin, again, they're not really that different in Calvinism that it is just based on the sovereignty of God, that it's faith alone. And even faith here is faith that's not under the control of the individual. In each case, we're talking about an imputed righteousness that, because the problem is, again, in an Augustinian notion of an original guilt, rather than the idea of a fallenness, a slavery, to death, as we have it in Paul's picture. You know, is it unconditional, conditional? Well, all of this language is flowing out, I think, of a departure. And if we can just avoid getting into the argument that we just do not need to have, it's not there in Paul, because Paul has a very different concept of what a person is. You know, they're going to argue that the only way we're saved is that God does it, or that in some way God and a synergistic notion. Of course, what a human being is in salvation is that we're participants in the Trinity. We are totally free, that's true, only as we come to Christ. But this pertains to the very specific realm that Paul has in mind. And of course, what you get prior to Augustine is a clear notion that in this regard, man has a free will, that we're not totally depraved that we can choose. I don't think we want to put too much emphasis on this capacity for choice, but the idea is not that man's mind in a Calvinist sense is totally darkened. Now we can talk about a deception and a lie, but where does that lie exist? It exists, first of all, corporately in the human project, and then certainly when we sin, we take it up individually. But how that affects us as we come into chapter 7, is a very specific thing. What Paul is describing in chapter 6 is that it gives us the logic of both sin, and we can understand sin best from a viewpoint of salvation. If we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, then we'll be united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. That is, that what Christ has done is reverse the hold that sin has on us by freeing us up from the hold that death, or what Paul will refer to in chapter 8 as the fear of death, the Hebrew writer refers to as the fear of death. Sin produces death. It's true, then, that sin is a taking up of death into the cell. The idea of being dead here is not, oh, now we're mortal. Of course, we were born mortal. That's what we are. But there is a living death, and that's the body of death, that is the orientation to death, in which we are indeed incapacitated in our uh, ability to do right. But I think it's something that's explainable, that is, Paul's explaining it. The distortion of sin is very specific. And once we get this straight, we understand, well, what it will mean to be fully human, to have all of our capacities in place cannot 
be something apart from participation in the Trinity. And so the old self, the old self is the body of death, the body of sin, Paul used both words. It has to do with that orientation. And you can talk about this self being crucified because it does you no harm. That is, that it's not anything real. It's not who you are in God. It's not who you were created to be that it gets crucified. But it's this orientation that is definitive of the old self that is crucified. So this is the sense in which death in Christ defeats death. If sin is grounded in death, then Christ's death defeats sin in the very place that sin is giving way to the power of death. So if sin is an orientation to death, we might, and the language here is a bit too simplistic, uh, death denial, but if you explain it a bit, then this will make sense of how death acceptance, you know, this is what the picture of baptism is. We've died with him. We have a new orientation to death. So we might call this death acceptance as over and against a death resistance or death denial. Billy, all of this chapter, in a sense, gets closed up if we've misread chapter 5. And so our body of sin is done away with. Paul says we're no longer slaves to sin because Christ's death frees us up. It gives us life in the midst of death. This is the illustration with Abraham, that Abraham is pictured as being in the midst of death, but having a kind of death acceptance. And what that means is not a a giving up, but a faith in God to give life. And so this language has nothing to do with penal substitution, you know, God paying off a debt, but it has everything to do with the human orientation and changing up that human orientation. It's not that aimed at God, but it's aimed at the human condition. How does this pertain to the will? Well, the language is never one that isolates human will from other things, that it's all of a piece. You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. The language here of Romans 8, he's described this slavery in chapter 7, this punishing slavery. That this, this is the picture of Passover, of what he means by communion in other places. And here in Romans, what he means by baptism. In Hebrews, he says, that even though Paul may not have written Hebrews, I don't think he did, but it's very Pauline in this, that the children share in flesh and blood, and he himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. You know, what is the devil's power not to choose who lives or dies in the sense of getting hit by a truck or something? but in the sense of enslaving us then to the fear, fear of death. The picture then is that in Christ, the defeat of death frees us from the slavery to sin. Our old self, not simply our will, but all that we were, you know, this is the orientation. This is, I think, our idea here in regard to gaining life through the law of human pride. All that feeds into this so that our body of sin might be done away with so that we'd no longer be slaves to sin. And so sin depends upon death. We've talked about this to enslave. And this gets at a kind of zero-sum game, that there's only so much life, so much substance to go around. And I think this is the picture that death gets at how sin is interwoven with death in that death then is a delimitation. It is an attempt to gain life. Uh, Isn't that the picture of Cain, isn't that the picture of Adam and Eve? That's the human picture today. 
that in a violent circumstance in which everyone is trying to gain life through various things, through various means. You know, this is pride, but pride might base itself on, it might be a nationalistic pride, it might be a pride in human wealth, possession, identity, position. To be provided life, to be given an abundance of life, to be given an abundance of food or an abundance of wealth, the imagery is various. We have an abundance of life. We're no longer enslaved to the law of sin and death in which we're trying to gain life for ourselves. So that as Christ was raised from the dead, we too, because we have this assurance of life in the face of death, we walk in newness of life. We're able to follow Christ in this. We become like him in his death, in his orientation to death, in his dying, a defeat of death, and we become like him in his resurrection. We have resurrection life now. His death provides access to life in Paul's picture. And so we no longer take flight from death or get rid of it as the reality that we live with. And we're not in denial of it, but the orientation toward death in which death is the, the controlling principle, that principle is undone by entering into it with Christ, by not resisting it, by not denying it, by accepting. In a, in a way, you can put it positively. You don't need to state it negatively that it's the fact that we don't have life within ourselves. We are not innately immortal souls, the Greek notion that it gets absorbed by the church. That for us, life comes from God, and that's the only source of life. We do not just naturally live forever. If we understand that and the way in which death is connected with every form of violence, of murder, sin then is obviously this destructive, murderous orientation, masochism or sadism or thanatos, that it's it's what Kierkegaard calls the sickness unto death. But I believe this is very biblical, that Paul is describing sin then as a sickness, and Christ as the great physician who heals us of this disease. And even in the picture as we get into Romans 7, that it's clearly true outwardly that death is connected to these various forms of violence, but even in the inward self, our human orientation psychologically. Paul is picturing it as a kind of entry into the deception of Genesis 3, you won't die, that you know, you size the seeking life in the law, and he pictures it as a desire, a covetousness that kills. That is, this is what gives us the body of sin or the body of death. And so it's the, the suspension of this. Baptism is a suspension of this. Now live out your baptism. We've died with Christ. We, Our body of sin has been crucified with him. And so we're freed from sin, that sin no longer controls us. And and sense of the deeds of unrighteousness, anger, murder, jealousy, lust. If you go through those pictures of unrighteousness or the unspirit, it is always connected to violence and death. If we've already died to that, we've died to that principle, it's no longer determinative. We know that God gives life. We don't covet life. We don't desire life by other means. And maybe to articulate all of this is to say more than we normally articulate. To put it in this language may not resonate with the way we normally talk about it because pride, we get that, we get how pride works, but to say that pride is really a kind of death resistance is maybe a step removed in our ability to apprehend it consciously because at some level we've 
consciously uh, that, that in our conscience we just have access to life in and of ourselves. This is Paul's picture. That transgression of the law is on the basis that there is life in the law, that we imagine that we have life by other means. And this he's going to spell this out in Romans 6 and 8. And so they freed themselves from sin and death. And the, the danger is that they've misunderstood what this freedom amounts to, that sin is now powerless, but the danger is, you know, he says this several times in Romans, something, you know, is shall we sin that grace may abound? Is the law sin? The picture is that you may experience this freedom and use it in the wrong way. Now, there may be a kind of perversity here, and I think he's trying to get us to understand or get the Romans to understand that we can articulate this, that he who has died is freed from sin in order to become a slave to righteousness, that death no longer has a hold, and so the works of death no longer have hold. And so present yourselves to God as those alive in Christ. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.